that you'll reveal yourself to us in, a, in fresh new ways, Lord. That we'll experience new measures of your grace and a deeper understanding of you. We ask that in your name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 12. As we move into Acts chapter 12, the chapter sort of naturally breaks down into, into four little sections, four parts. It's kind of like a little, little four-act play. And so that's kind of how we're going to look at it today. The first act here, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. It was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to, the church, to God by the church. So it says, about that time. About what time? About the time that chapter 11 ended, right? About the time that Peter had just gone back to Jerusalem to kind of report this this new ministry that was taking place in the Gentile world. There, Peter had just gotten back from Caesarea and he's experienced this whole miracle of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there in the home of Cornelius and he stayed for a little while and instructing these new Gentile believers in the faith. And so he's back now in Jerusalem. At that time, Herod. Now, as we're reading through the New Testament, that name pops up quite a bit, doesn't it? And, and it refers to a number of different people. This time when it refers to Herod, it's not a Herod that we've been previously acquainted with. right? This, this was a sort of a dynasty of Herods. And, and there were many Herods. In Scripture, there are no less than six separate Herods mentioned. And a couple of the Herods that are mentioned... They're only mentioned by their first name, so you don't always associate them with the Herods. But there are six Herods in the New Testament. I put up five for a second. I had to, I had to pop up one just so you could know that I can count. Um, <coughs> so this one here is not Herod Antipas. Remember, Herod Antipas is the one who, along with Pontius Pilate, condemned Christ to death. It's not that one. It's not Herod the Great. By the way, I believe he named himself. Um, it's not Herod the Great, the one who tried to put baby Jesus to death. This isn't the Herod referred to in Matthew chapter 2, verse 22, who Mary and Joseph fled from when they returned from Egypt. It's also not the Herod referred to in Acts chapter 26 that Paul would later preach the gospel to. This Herod here is Herod Agrippa I. And um, so this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, it says that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
The King James Version says this. He stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And so we get the sense here that the church is really suffering under the abuse of Herod Agrippa. And I want to note here that Herod is not persecuting the church for the same reason that Saul had done earlier. Remember Saul, when he was persecuting the church, he was persecuting the church for religious reasons, right? He was, in his heart, he was wrong, but he believed that he was doing the right thing. Paul talks about that, how he, he believed that he was doing service to God when he was persecuting the church. That is not what's going on here with Herod. Herod's motivations are purely political. They're purely selfish motivations. And um, it says that he had killed James with the sword. And when he did that, it pleased the Jews. Right? They were excited by that. And so he wants to do it again. He wants to curry more favor with them. And so when he killed James, remember James was John's brother. Remember we, in the Gospels we see James and John referred to as the sons of thunder. Remember they're the ones when they're in that village and the village refused Jesus, they wanted to call down fire from heaven and, and scorch the earth. <clears throat> James and John, they're... they're the early apostles, two of the twelve. I remember James, John, and Peter, they were sort of the, 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 the inner circle, right? They were the three. They were the ones that were with Jesus there on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so James here, he's the first of the twelve to be martyred. James, it says that he was arrested and that he was killed by the sword. Most likely, according to the customs of the day, he was beheaded. And this, it made the Jewish leaders, it made them giddy. Right? They were excited. They were, they were happy. They were thrilled that, that Herod was taking action against the church. And sort of a funny thing, my daughter Hannah, she, um, she's going to be a year old tomorrow. And um, it's crazy how fast that time has gone. And, you know, about a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago, she started taking her first steps. And, you know, whenever she does something new, the whole family's, yay, good job, Hannah! And she gets so excited about it. And so what does she do? She wants to do it again. She loves the applause. So she'll kind of look. She'll see if we're watching. And as soon as she sees we're watching, she'll do it again because she's, she's looking for that affirmation and that applause again. And I think that that's exactly what's going on here. I, I think Herod wanted more applause. Herod wanted more affirmation from the Jewish leaders. He wanted more, more brownie points. And so he arrested Peter on Passover. And he's going to finish Peter off with the sword also. And so we find here Peter, he's already locked away in jail. Now... Looking around at the crowd here, most of us haven't done 
a lot of hard time, I don't think. I don't think most of us have been in prison. And maybe some of you guys have. I don't know. But I actually, I, uh, I was arrested a couple times. And um, I, didn't, I didn't get, I didn't serve any time. But I got put in a jail cell for a couple of different things once. Once in like ninth grade, there was this big um, cell phone radio tower that they built in the parking lot of the police station. And so on a dare, me and a couple friends climbed that thing. And um, yeah, Mike says, well, why wouldn't you? It's there. Well, what else else am I supposed to do with it? Um, And so the police came out and brought us down and put us in a cell. And and they basically called our parents. And my mom didn't answer the phone, so they let me go. But it was a good scare. Another time I was in uh, in Tijuana. And... um, I was minding my own business there in Tijuana. I was getting ready to cross the street, and a police car pulled up and, and threw me and a few Mexicans in the back of the car and, and took us to jail. And um, as you can imagine, getting tossed in jail in Tijuana makes for a good story. And that's a story for another time. I'm not going to share that today. But I'll tell you this. The jail in Tijuana was exceedingly foul and dirty. It was vile. But it would have been nothing compared to the prison that Peter is in here. These jails, they would have been underground. There wouldn't have been any ventilation, no natural light, no bathrooms. They would have been infested with disease. And that's where we find Peter right now. And it notes that he was guarded by four squadrons of soldiers, four squads of soldiers. And a squad consisted of four soldiers. So he has 16 soldiers who are, who are keeping watch over him. Peter here, he's, he's, in, he's in lockdown, right? He's in, in the maximum security prison right now. The soldiers are, are rotating through in shifts. Two at a time, we're going to learn, they're handcuffed to Peter. And so the church, right, James has just been murdered. Peter's arrested. It looks like he's about to befall the same fate. Things are are looking dark, right? Peter's going to be executed in the morning. There doesn't seem to be a lot of hope. So the church, they begin to gather together. It says in verse 5, So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's locked away, chained up, handcuffed, scheduled to be beheaded in the morning. And so the church, they gather together. And they begin to pray for their pastor. By the way, just sort of a side note, if I'm ever scheduled to be executed, I appreciate that. If you guys want to just gather and pray for me, that'd be cool. Um, I don't know where that came from. Um, So they're together praying for their pastor. It says that they were praying earnestly, fervently. Their their hearts were into it. And and they're gathered together offering up their request to God. Act 2 here, verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains. And centuries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, 
an angel of the Lord stood next, stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now listen, he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. <laughs> but he thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent this angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So I, I love the idea of what's going on here. Peter, locked up in prison, scheduled to be executed the next morning. Sleeping like a baby, isn't he? Fast asleep. And we see, I mean, he's, he's out here, right? Peter's sawing logs. I don't know about you, but sometimes, you know, during periods of stress or anxiety, sleep is hard to find, isn't it? And just lay in bed all night thinking and pondering. Not Peter. Not this time anyway. Peter, right, he does, he's not dozing off. He's out cold. Right? The angel appears. And the, the cell is, is filled with this white light. Nothing. He's still out cold. The angel has to shake him a little bit. It says the angel struck Peter on the side. He had to slap Peter around to wake him up. You know when your kids are first starting to potty train and, you know, they're starting to, to go to bed at night without their diaper on and you have to wake them up in the middle of the night a couple times and, and take them peace so they don't go in the bed? I have a, one of my boys was a particularly sound sleeper. And you'd wake him up and you'd shake him. I had a little squirt bottle I'd squirt him with occasionally. I'd go in there and start yelling at him, just making up songs. And, uh, and it was a lot of fun, frankly. But, um, but it was hard to wake him up. And it took a while before he finally kind of, you know, came to his senses. And, and that's kind of what's going on with Peter here. I mean, he's like, he's dead to the world. How? In the midst of all that's going on in his life, how does he have that kind of peace that he can sleep like that? I think there's two things that kind of come into play. First, remember Jesus, back in John chapter 21, he had already told Peter how he was going to die, didn't he? He told Peter that when he was an old man, he was going to be led away and crucified. So I don't know, in Peter's mind, maybe he's thinking, you know, I'm, I'm not old yet, you know, so, I, so I can't die. 
Plus, Peter's probably thinking, you know, it's the Jews who want to kill me right now. And the Jews, when they enacted capital punishment, they used stoning. Or in the case of James, beheading. Or sometimes they would, they would strangle people to death. Only the Romans used crucifixion as a method of capital punishment. And Peter probably knew that because there were no Romans involved, he wasn't about to be crucified. And he knew that's the only way that he could die because Jesus said that he was going to be crucified. You know, so maybe Peter wasn't worried because he knew that it wasn't his time. It could be. But I tend to think that Philippians chapter 4 has more to do with it. Remember Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Peter trusted the Lord. Peter prayed, and he surrendered his will to God. He recognized that in life or in death, God is in control. Listen, when we as the people of God, when we have faith in God, when we're filled with the Spirit, we can experience perfect peace no matter what's going on. We come to a point where we can say, look, I can't do anything about my situation except to pray. All I can do is give it to the Lord and trust that He is sovereign and that He is in control of all things all the time. And we surrender our stress and our worries and our anxiety to Him. And in exchange, we get the peace of God. We get joy. We get the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Listen, friends. That is a good deal, isn't it? You can, you can either cling to your own stress and your troubles and anxieties and worries. And listen, I'm not downplaying anything. I'm not saying that your issues aren't real. I'm not saying that you don't have anything to worry about. You may well have legitimate issues in your life. What I'm saying is this. You can keep them or you can surrender them to the Lord. You can keep your anxiety or you can trade it for the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. You can let Him guard your heart and your mind. And the thing is, it's a battle sometimes, isn't it? It's a constant choice that we have to make. You know, so often in my life, I'll get stressed. I'll, I'll, I'll be anxious over something, and, and, I'll, and I'll meditate on that verse. You know, be anxious for nothing. Okay, Lord, I, I surrender this to you. I make a decision to trust God with it for about three minutes. And all of a sudden, I find myself worrying about it again. And I have to re-surrender. Right? I have to think about, I have to meditate on that verse again and, and make another decision to surrender it to the Lord. And, and it's not always easy, that process of, of surrendering to the Lord. 
It can be hard. But guess what? It's far easier than carrying our burdens alone, isn't it? Peter, fast asleep in the cell here, snoring away. The angel shows up. Blinding light fills the cell. Peter still sleeps. Angel shakes him. Wake up! Slaps Peter around. Finally, Peter pops his eyes open. And the angel and the King James it says this: "Gird thyself." I don't know why I like that expression. Gird thyself. Bind thy sandals, Peter. Angel says, "Peter, get dressed." Now, I don't know. This just popped in my mind. I don't know why Peter didn't already have his clothes on. Being in with a bunch chained to a bunch of so anyway, anyway. Get dressed, Peter. Bind thy sandals. We got to go. We got to leave, Peter. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought that he was seeing a vision. So Peter, seems like he's just kind of going along with this. And this is kind of funny. But Peter, he, he thinks that he's dreaming. You ever have dreams that just seem so real and so vivid? And you're kind of conscious and aware, and you know that it's a dream while it's happening? It kind of seems like what Peter thinks is going on. And he's just kind of going through the motions, listening to the angel, but he thinks it's a dream. And he goes past the first prison guard. And he goes past the second prison guard. You know, and the Mission Impossible theme music's playing in the background, and he's creeping up to the gate. And look what it says. He gets to the gate, and what happens? It opened for them of its own accord. You ever watch, you know, cartoons, you know, where Scooby-Doo or whatever, they get to some old abandoned mansion, and they get ready to knock on the door, and that's kind of what happens here. The gate just opens up for them all by itself. Peter, they find themselves out on the street, and it says they, they walk down one street, and then Peter finally wakes up. He kind of gets the sense of what's going on. He realizes that, that this is a real thing, that this is really happening. He realized that the Lord had saved him from Herod and his wicked plans. And right about that time, it says that the angel just disappears. Third act here, verse 12. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened and saw him, they were amazed. But motioning them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. 
Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is a funny few verses, isn't it? Peter realizes that he was sprung from jail. And he goes to a place that he thinks is going to be safe. He goes to the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. And this is Mark, the, the author of Mark's gospel. And this is the place where this prayer meeting was taking place. And this is where this little scene unfolds. Peter gets there, and he starts quietly knocking on the door. Now, remember, this whole thing is unfolding at about 3 in the morning. In my experience, it's never a good thing when somebody comes to your house and starts knocking on the door at 3 in the morning. It's usually not something good. It's usually not Publisher's Clearinghouse with that giant check, right? Rhoda comes to answer the door. Yeah, hello? It's me, Peter. Open up. What does Rhoda do? Right? She's excited. She recognizes it's him. So she leaves him there. And she runs to tell everyone, hey, guess what, guys? Peter's at the door. And what's their response? Let him in. No. They say, you're out of your mind. You lost your marbles. The King James says, thou art mad, woman. Girl, you're crazy. Peter's in jail. He can't be out there. And she kept insisting, yes, he's there, he's there. So what was their response? Oh, it must be his angel. Makes sense, I guess. There was a belief in those days that people had guardian angels who looked like them. Now, think about all that's going on here. First of all, why didn't they just go open the door and look? Rather than stand there arguing with the girl about it. That's, that's weird, number one. Number two, it's weird that they thought it was his angel instead of him, isn't it? Maybe they thought it was his ghost stopping by for a quick visit before he went to heaven. Maybe they thought he was killed or something. I don't know. But think about this. Think about their, their lack of faith here. This group of believers is gathered together and they're praying for Peter's release. And Peter shows up released. Their prayers are answered. And they didn't believe it. Thou art mad, woman. Do you believe that God hears our prayers? Do you believe that God answers prayer? It's a funny thing. Sometimes we, you know, we pray. We let our requests be made known to God. Lord, please do this for me. Lord, please do that for me. And sometimes he answers very clearly. And then we don't have enough faith to believe his answer. Sometimes we don't have enough faith to receive the answer to our prayers. 
In the meantime, Peter's still outside the door. Right? He's on the lamb. He's on the run. He just broke out of prison, and he wants to get out of sight, and nobody will let him in. And I can imagine Peter there, kind of trying to stay close to the wall, looking this way and that way, trying to knock loud enough to be heard, but not loud enough to, to wake the neighbors up. And finally, they open the door, and they're amazed, and there's a big commotion, and Peter's, shh, they don't want everybody to know I'm here. He says, go and tell James that I'm here. Now, if you're just reading through this, you're like, what? Tell James's head? Well, he just got his head cut off. How, how, how are they going to tell James? Now, in the original language, the name is actually Yaakov. And in the Old Testament, that's typically translated Jacob. And for reasons that we're not going to go into with King James in England, in the New Testament, that name is translated James. But it was a very popular name in that time. That's like going to Mexico and you yell, Jesus, Juan! About two-thirds of the guys will look at you. Right? It's a very common name. There were lots of James, lots of Jacobs at this time. And the James who was just executed was John's brother. And the James here that Peter's referring to, this James is the author of James's epistle. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. This is the James who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem at the time. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. So morning dawns, the soldiers wake up, the dungeon's locked, the chains are still in place, but there's no Peter there. Peter's gone. And so Herod examined the guards. What that means is he had them tortured to find out information. He put their feet in the fire, so to speak. And what he's doing is he's making sure they're telling the truth, making sure they weren't paid off to release Peter, that they weren't being negligent of their duties. And after he gets the information he needs, what does he do? He has them put to death. That's a common practice in that day. Under Roman law, if you were a prison guard and you lose a prisoner, you took their punishment. If that prisoner was sentenced to 10 years in prison and he gets away, you have to finish his sentence. If a prisoner was sentenced to death and he gets away, you, you, get, to, you get a sentence. You'll be put to death. We'll be looking at Acts chapter 16. And you may remember the story there. Remember in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas are in prison. And there's an earthquake and all the prison doors come open. And the jailer there in Philippi, he, he thinks that all the prisoners have escaped. So what does he do? He pulls out his sword and he's going to fall on his sword and kill 
itself because he knows that's going to be better than, than his punishment. And I remember in that story, Paul says, hey, don't worry, we're, we're still here. And, and that eventually leads to the salvation of the Philippian jailer. But Herod here, he sees these guys have, has, have lost their prisoner, and so he sentences them to death. Final act, verse 20. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took a seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. So Herod, he ruled that whole region. And he was sort of a, a puppet ruler under Rome. And so apparently he has some issues with some of his subjects there in Tyre and Sidon. And so he cuts them off. They're not getting any food. And remember, it's during the time of a drought, as we saw in the last chapter, so they couldn't grow their own food, or not much of it. And maybe they, maybe they didn't produce a lot of food. Maybe they had some other industry, and they, and they traded it for food. Regardless of the situation, they were dependent on Herod to keep their people alive, and Herod cut them off. And so it says that they... They made friends with his assistant, Blastus. They said, hey, put in a, put in a good word. Get a, get a meeting scheduled between us and Herod. And finally, they got their appointment. The time came, and Herod came out dressed in his royal robes. Now, extra-biblical accounts of this event tell us that Herod had this, this really fancy robe that had silver thread weaved through the fabric and it was it was very extravagant and flashy and he stands up in this flashy robe and he makes this speech to the people and we already saw how he loves popularity and how he loves the approval of men and after he gives his speech and the people they're trying to get something from him so after he finishes his speech they all start shouting this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And Herod's all, yeah, maybe. Could be. Right? They're flattering him. They're puffing him up. They're calling him God. And in this vain man, this prideful man, he receives the flattery. And he, and he, and he began to believe all of his own PR. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. 
At that moment, Herod was struck by the Lord. He fell sick because he was accepting the glory due to God. Herod wasn't giving God glory, and it cost him his life. Listen, this is important. This is what happens to everyone who doesn't give God glory. Maybe not the worm part, right? And maybe it's not as instant. Maybe it's not as drastic or dramatic as what happened to Herod. But eventually, if you refuse to give God glory, it will cost you your life. It will cost you your soul. If you refuse to acknowledge God and only live for yourself, if you make yourself God, it's going to cost you everything in the end. It says that Herod was consumed with worms and he died. And Josephus, the renowned historian, records this event as well and talks about, he's the one who talks about Herod's flashy robes and, and how he was consumed by worms. And he gives us a little more information. But worms, worms are gross. And not worms like you go buy a little styrofoam container of worms to catch some fish. Right? Those aren't the worms that we're talking about here. We're talking about about parasites, right? You, you, you eat a little egg and, and they develop inside of you and, and they, they eat all the food that you're supposed to eat. And, and eventually, you know what happens to those worms? They get too big in there and they decide they want to come out. And, and I've seen quite a bit of this in Central America. And, and what would happen is they either come out your nose or your mouth or they come out the other end. And um, I hesitated for service as to whether I should tell this story or not. I probably shouldn't, so I did. And um, I don't want you guys to miss anything. Um, so we had foster kids once. I can already see some of you guys squirming at the story. And, um, and these foster kids, they are from this house right next to our church. And... Um, very, very poor family. I think the poorest family, one of the poorest families we ever ministered to. And, and they would kind of go out to the dump there on the edge of t the city and, and they would scavenge, you know, whatever they could and bring it back to their yard and their yard was just full of trash. And this particular family, they didn't have running water in their yard. They would, they would catch the rain off the roofs and, and just whatever filthy container they could catch. And, and we'd go over there and we'd see the kids just scooping up, it'd be an old soap bottle or something. They'd cut the top off and they'd use that to drink water. And um, the mom died. And two of the kids came to live with us for a while. And, um, and so the little girl, she was about five. And one day she's going to the bathroom and, and, and she starts crying and screaming. And, and so Denise goes in to check on her. And, um, and she had a worm. She had worms, multiple worms. But they got too big and, and, and they were trying to come out. And, um, and, and these worms, they weren't like a little worm. They were like a big fat pencil and like feet long, right? And, and it came part way out. And we had to grab it and 
pull it the rest of the way out. It was this big, nasty thing. And Herod here, and I don't mean to be gross, it's a good story, but, but it illustrates well what's going on with Herod here. Herod had some kind of a, a parasitic worm, or worms, multiple, and they consumed him. And apparently, they were visible, right? And they started coming out of him, and, and everybody could see. And the Bible says that he got sick instantly. He got consumed with the worms. But we know from extra-biblical sources that he fell down sick instantly, but it took five days for him to finally succumb to his illness and die. This was a long, painful, disgusting process. Now, verse 24 is a little bit funny to me. Herod was just consumed with worms and died. And then Luke just moves on like nothing happened. And NLT it says, but meanwhile, it's almost like if you have kids who watch SpongeBob. Right? Three hours later. Right? I saw all your parents, are, your mouths are saying at the same time, I hate SpongeBob. That's not true, I kind of like him. Um, verse 24, meanwhile, our translation says, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Nothing could stop the movement of God. Not persecution, not execution, not imprisonment, nothing. And I've shared this before, but historically, the greatest periods of church growth, the times that the church has been the most powerful spiritually, have been during the times of the most extreme persecution. Why? It's kind of counterintuitive, isn't it? It seems like persecution would make people flee the church. But hard times, they fo force us to, to turn to the Lord. They force us to, to rely on Him for strength. And I've said this before, but when, when things are going good in my life, when ministry's going well, and when my wife likes me, and I'm healthy, and, and I've, got, I've got money in my pocket, you know, I love the Lord, but that utter dependence isn't there sometimes. And it's not that we need God any less, but it's that we don't see our need as clearly. But when hard times come, whether it's relationship issues or health issues or, or persecution or whatever, those things tend to, to bring our need for the Lord into focus, don't they? When hard times come, that's when we, when we run to the Lord and cry out, Lord, deliver me. When there's no persecution, when there's no opposition, the church grows in numbers. The church grows in influence. The church grows in, in political power. But the church is spiritually anemic and weak. Impotent, powerless. And I'll say this again. I believe that times are changing. I think it's clear 
we can see the signs. It's clear that, that persecution is coming. We, we know what Scripture says. And to be honest, there's a part of me that, that, that welcomes that. If, if that's what we need to get serious about the Lord. If a little bit of tribulation is what we need to drive us into the arms of the Lord, if that's what we need to, to purify us and to refine us and to make us into the people that we need to be, if a little bit of, of tribulation is what we need to, to shake us out of our, of our lukewarmness and our half-heartedness, let it come. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem where they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. The King James says this, when they had fulfilled their ministry. And I like that idea, don't you? They fulfilled their ministry. I can't think of a much higher praise to have recorded about me than that, for you to have recorded about you than that, that we fulfilled our ministry, that we completed the mission that the Lord has given us. They did all that they were called to do. It's sort of that well done, good and faithful servant thing. Now as we close, I, I want to close with this one idea. Go back to verse 7. It says, and the chains fell off his hands. Peter had found himself in bondage, in prison, in shackles, in chains. But when God shows up, when God goes to work, it says that the chains fell off his hands. Now there may be some among us now obviously not literally in chains but spiritually you're shackled spiritually you're bound you're not experiencing the freedom of the Lord and maybe you've tried maybe you've tried to get free maybe you've tried to, to break loose from, from the grip that the enemy has on you and you find that you just can't do it you can't break free. You're unable to. You keep, you keep going back to the same things. Like it says in the Proverbs, as a dog, ref dog returns to his vomit, so the fool returns to his folly. Maybe you, like the fool, you keep going back to those same sins over and over again. And you hate it. Listen. The Lord wants to touch you. The Lord wants to bring freedom. The Lord wants to loose the chains that bind you. The Lord showed up. The Lord made freedom available to Peter. But what did the angel say? Gird thyself. Bind thy sandals. Peter, in order to access the freedom that the Lord gave him, he had to put his shoes on. He had to put on his big boy pants, didn't he? He had to choose to follow the angel 
and to leave the bondage that he was in. I hope that, that you can see the lesson here. So often we're like, you know, I want freedom. I want to get away from these things that are keeping me in bondage. I want to, I want to break free from these sins. But then we refuse to leave the prison cell. You want freedom, but you refuse to do what it takes. The Lord has, has broken the bonds, but you need to leave the prison cell. Maybe, maybe you struggle with alcoholism, and you keep going back to the bottle, and you feel like you want to stop. But you know, it's, it's hard because it's your whole social network. And you're hanging around other people who do those things. And you say, I want to quit, but it's, it's just too hard. Well, fine then. Stay in your prison cell. Or maybe you fall into sexual sin. Maybe you're in a relationship that you need to get out of. Maybe you need to get out of the environment that you're in that's causing it. You say, it's too hard. I, I don't want to leave that thing. I don't want to leave that relationship. Fine then, stay in bondage. Stay where you are. Stay in your prison cell. Listen, the Lord is offering you freedom. But you have to walk in that freedom. The Lord freed Peter. The Lord opened the doors. But Peter still had to take action, didn't he? He still had to take the steps. He still had to put one foot in front of the other. The Lord this morning is giving you freedom for whatever it is that has you bound up. But you have to walk in it. You have to make the changes necessary in your life. You have to have the courage to change your situation, to change your environment, to change whatever's causing this. And the Lord will give you that even if you ask Him for it. So that's the encouragement I want to give you this morning. The Lord, through the blood of Christ, has purchased your freedom. But you have to walk in the freedom that He's granting you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for Your goodness for your mercy, Lord. You know, we all struggle with different things, different strongholds in our life, Lord. Different addictions and sins that we love, Lord. And we know you want to set us free from those things. That you've broken the, you've broken the chains, Lord. And Father, we pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to walk in the freedom that you've granted. We ask that in your name, Jesus.